This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So nice to be amongst you. Um, I get a bit sort of lonely for the Sangha in Lincoln, so it's good for me. It's good for you too. So I've been an order member about 38 years, and uh, grey hair, white hair, and uh, that has its advantages. And one of the advantages is that I was able to get a lot more kind of personal contact with uh, Bente, I'll just call him Bente, uh, when the order was very small. He would actually write letters to you and, um, you know, that sort of thing. And so it was, it was um, I think there was about 30 or 40 order members when I was ordained. And for the first few dec- uh, first decade or couple after that, it was, you got quite, quite good personal contact. You knew him as a man. And... Uh, of course, I, I've met so many people in my life that I really very much admire, but I would say he is one of a handful of very great men, extreme, you know, extremely unusual, extremely spiritually developed. And the only other people I really feel quite so strongly about as great people are all Tibetans, and there's been always such a big cultural gap, and I don't think they'd have made good teachers, for instance. Uh, but So I've, my life is blessed, I feel, but I feel all of our lives are blessed, because um, even if we haven't sort of even shaken hands or embraced, we've at least got a sense of uh, Bente um, indirectly. So... Uh, He's lived a, a long life, and some of you have read um, his autobiographies, and you've heard other people talk about it. So you prob- probably most of you have some knowledge of his life, but he's nearly 90 years old, uh, five years younger than my mother. And so in, I think he's about 88? So in 88 years, you can do an awful lot of things. So there's always more about his life to discover and so tonight maybe some of the things I'll say you are already aware of and some of the things will probably be new. So I'm going to start with a little bit about his early life uh, and this I'm just cribbing from a talk he gave in 2008 in Sheffield but I kind of liked it And then the main thing I want to do is talk about his qualities as a human being, which are quite extraordinary. So he was born in a poor family in London in 1925, and his father was a French polisher. And I I don't think, in New Zealand anyway, many people are employed as French polishers, and I doubt if many are in Britain now. But anyway, that's what his dad did. And his dad was sometimes out of work, so quite a poor London family, Tooting, I think that's south, south of the river, uh, and obviously um, not much Buddhism around. In fact, even anywhere in Britain in those days, very, very few people knew much about Buddhism. Uh, 
So his first little taste was when he was eight or nine years old. He's, he's a prolific reader from an early age. Um, he read a little bit about the Buddha in a children's encyclopedia. I think he said once that his parents were a bit like um, adult um, birds feeding a young bird with worms, only instead of feeding him worms to eat, they had to keep bringing him books to read. <laughs> so they were always coming and going with books. So anyway, he managed to, to get this whole children's encyclopedia. He came to a section on... Uh, uh, religious leaders from around the world, and there's Zarathustra and Muhammad and Christ. So he read about them all, and only the Buddha really appealed to him. So that was his first, you know, there's something about the Buddha that just run true. And then uh, when he was 12 or 13, you may have heard this story, they went on a, a family outing to Brighton, and little boy, as he was then, walking past don't know whether it was an antique shop or a bric-a-brac shop, but second-hand. And he's, he was just passing, he just saw a little bronze Buddha in the window. And uh, he had a little bit of pocket money, so he used his pocket money to buy this. He did, no, no sort of particular reason for it, he just wanted to do it. And then a little bit further along, he, he came across a place to buy incense. Uh, and so he was very pleased. And when he got back to London, quite spontaneously, he just put the, the Buddha image on the table and he burnt his precious sticks of incense in front of the Buddha. And he says, uh, he'd no particular idea why. Um, and his parents would have thought it very strange, but they already thought he was a strange boy anyway, so they didn't <laughs> ask him any questions. And then, uh, that was 12 or 13, Maybe a little bit later, he continued his reading and reflection, and he thought, I'm definitely not a Christian. Don't like it, actually. Quite, quite repulsed by some aspects of Christianity. And then, when he was 16, he uh, had a kind of spiritual awakening. He read a couple of uh, very deep, um, famous Buddhist scriptures, Buddhist texts, uh, the Diamond Sutra and the Sutra of Huining. And he says, when I read them, I knew that this is what I really and truly and completely believe. You know, couldn't really believe totally in all this God stuff, but when he read that, it definitely. And, he's, and the way he describes it, he said he knew that he had always believed that. So anyway, that's just a bit about his early life. And from that moment on, uh, I should say his course has been unswerving in terms of Buddhism and the Buddha Dhamma. Never, from that moment at 16, never kind of had any doubts. So what I, mainly I want to talk about is qualities. And it would be easy just to develop a random list, but I think that would be a bit, bit higgledy-piggledy all over the place. So I thought I'd use a schema to talk about his qualities. I thought, what? Maybe the five spiritual faculties. But then I thought, no, um, I'll use the five aspects of spiritual life. If, do, have you heard of the five aspects of spiritual life? It's one of his more recent schemas, yes? Yeah. Well, I'll, the good thing about this talk is that if you haven't heard about them, you'll understand them a little bit better, I hope, by the end of the talk. Uh, 
this is one of his teachings that um, if you want to really progress in Buddhism, you need a balanced approach. If you leave a, a whole section of Buddhist practice, then um, however determined you are in other areas, you'll be a bit stymied. And so right from the beginner's level, right through to very advanced people, we should be practicing every one of the five in some way. Um, so the five are, I'll just say what they are, integration, which is like mindfulness. Second one is developing positive emotion, which is like developing metta and other positive emotions. Third one I'll describe a bit more later, but it's called spiritual receptivity. Fourth, spiritual death. And fifth uh, is spiritual rebirth. And it seems to me that Bante is extraordinarily far advanced in all five areas. And there have been many very famous Buddhists in history who have been, let's say, uneven. Very, very famous meditators, but get caught up in their ego, or, you know, because they haven't been practicing spiritual death. And it's quite common to meet people who are very determined, but uh, they never take time for aesthetics, and they never save the present moment, so they're missing out on spiritual rebirth. There's Buddhists who are very keen on ethics, mindfulness, but never really working to develop a sense of, uh, of the Buddha, of the transcendental, of the goal of spiritual life. Uh, so anyway, he's, he's saying we should um, try to practice in some way all, all five. So first of all, integration. Uh, the idea here is that we're not integrated, um, where uh, we've got a, a name, like people call me Achula, but there's different Achulas. There's part of me that's just only interested in sex, and then there's another part of me that's very keen Buddhist, and there's another part of me that's you know interested in something else. But what we've got to do is get all the Achulas... Um, Flying in formation, let's say, or, or flying, <laughs> flying more or less in the right direct, in the same direction, rather than in opposite directions. So, an integrated person is consistent. What they say and what they do more or less match, and what their ideas are and what their feelings are more or less match. Like uh, they might say, "Well, I've, you know." Um, got a lot of negative emotion and they experience some negative emotion but I'm trying to, to change my negative emotion into positive emotion so that's, that's understandable and integrated but if you deny that you've got any negative emotion because you're not aware of it and you, but you manifest it then you're not very integrated uh, so the way to become integrated is the practice of um, mindfulness, or what we could call shmriti in Sanskrit, sati in Pali. And of course, if you are integrated, you can concentrate very well, because you're not being pulled apart by distractions. And, and of course, Bhante Sankarachita are very good at concentration. Uh, never had any problem getting concentrated uh, in meditation. Uh, you know, closes his eyes, psh, straight into dhyana. 
Um, but you can tell that he's an, a very unusually mindful person. If you, oh, which I have done and a lot of people have, if you really watch him walk, you can tell that he's very, he's very aware of, aware of the way he moves his body. If you listen to him talking to somebody, that he, he chooses his words. He doesn't just go blah, 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 blather, you know. Um, he's very conscious of what it is that he's wanting to say. But at the same time, he can be very light and funny and spontaneous, but always mindful. So that's quite extraordinary. And if you go to meet him, he really looks at you and you feel he's, he's really seen you. You know, it's not just like a cardboard cutout that he's sort of relating to some projection. <laughs> you really, you feel naked, metaphorically, when you, when you go to see him. And uh, a lot of you know Paramatha, um, good mate of mine, a Kiwi, a New Zealander. Well, uh, he spent a very long time in um, Bente's company. And he says, well, being with Bente, he loves the man, but... Uh, Bante kind of keeps him always on his toes because he's so mindful. He says he keeps him up to scratch. He said, it's like a light bulb that never goes out. <laughs> like he doesn't have big blobs of absent-mindedness. He's just constantly aware. And I remember when he visited um, the community I was in in New Zealand for a month, and uh, I'd go on little outings for him. And then later he might talk about people he met, things he'd seen about a New Zealand society. And his powers of observation were extraordinary. Like, well, I'd, I'd walk along the street with him and then come back and he'd say all sorts of things about that street. And I thought, I must have been half dreaming when I went across that street because I didn't notice any of this. But he notices all the little details of what's happening here, what's happening there the sunlight, the traffic, the new building site, and I just, you know, comparatively speaking, in a sleep. So very mindful person. And positive emotion is the second of these five aspects that everybody needs to develop. And obviously we're not going to get very far in spiritual life if we, if we don't cultivate positive emotion. So he says that the primary positive emotion is what we call metta, loving-kindness, maitri in Sanskrit. And if you, he says if you have that, it's primary because as you interact with situations in the world, all the other positive emotions just come naturally. So if you have a lot of uh, metta, you, you will feel calm and uh, you'll feel happy. And then if you meet someone who's unhappy, you'll feel genuine compassion or, or um, karana. If you meet a happy person, you'll feel genuine sympathetic joy for them. You won't feel jealous. Uh, if you meet someone who's quite spiritually developed, you'll feel reverence. If somebody helps you, you'll feel gratitude uh, and, and, and so on. So it's, it's um, uh, a very, very, very important human quality and extremely well-developed in Bente. Uh, if you look into his eyes, you, you, you feel it. When, he, when he's talking about um, this quality in a seminar, you feel that he's actually experiencing it with the people he's talking to. 
if you know what I mean. He's talking about metta, but you're also feeling his metta, so it's not just a theoretical thing. And of, over the years, so many people have gone to him for interviews, and often, myself included in the early days, uh, they've been a bundle of nerves. I, I mean, I don't know what the psychology of this is, but you know, you think this guy can see right through you. You know he's kind, but you feel somehow vulnerable because you know he's such a high guru, and you know. So anyway, uh, he he just would so in such a relaxed way try to put people at their ease, and then he he started this whole tree retina movement. So he had a lot of business to attend to. But whenever somebody came in, whether it was about um, publishing another book or um, you know some problems in a centre in another part of the world, and they came in to see him, he wouldn't just go straight into the business. He'd want to know how the person was. You know, he'd be kind and he'd want to meet them and find out who, about them before then later getting onto the the business side of things. Uh, and he never. People, people had been really rotten to him over the years. I mean, one of his students, you know, said he was going to kill him. For instance, he went, you know, a bit mentally unstable. But he never kind of held a grudge. And I, I can speak from experience about this to some extent because, um, you know, I was writing letters to Bante and something, something he wrote to someone else I found out about and I got very, very angry with um, Bante, very vexed. So for about two years, I wrote him quite nasty letters. <laughs> I can see people wincing at the thought. Quite nasty letters, and um, yeah, about once a month. He, he, knew, <laughs> he knew I was very upset. And then at a certain point, I saw the whole thing in a different light. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness. So uh, I wrote an apology gulped, wrote an apology, and I said in this letter back to him, well, I've, I've well and truly blotted my copybook now. Um, you know, I don't expect that you'll be particularly pleased with me as a human being anymore. And uh, immediately he wrote a postcard back by return of post. No, you haven't blotted your copybook with me. My affection towards you has been unswerving the whole time. And, I, and, and when I met him, yeah, you could tell it was absolutely true. You know, he was completely... He doesn't take umbrage like that. So that's another sign of um, positive emotion. So thirdly, uh, spiritual receptivity. This is the quality of being inspired by what's good and noble and of, of real value. For instance, we can feel receptive to the Sangha, um, that we can appreciate the value of the Sangha or um, somebody like Tsubuti or any, anybody who's got really good qualities you feel really full of admiration or you hear a story about somebody who acted very very well in one particular situation and you know, it can almost if it almost brings you to tears well then that shows that you are able to appreciate the good in life um, it's also an appreciation of, of beauty um, and the ability to, to savour the present moment and not just always think in utilitarian terms about what needs to be done in a sort of business-like way. You know, because when we're appreciating beauty, we're kind of in the moment appreciating life 
of some aspect of life, of what it is in the present, not, you know, what it ought to be and what you need to do, um, etc. So this is a very important quality. And uh, there's absolutely too much for me to say um, how Bante has this so well developed, um, but you can tell from his teachings. But I'm just going to talk about how he's got a very heightened uh, appreciation of natural beauty and a heightened appreciation of the arts. So if you look at him, um, now he used to live at Padmaloka. I don't know if you know where that is. It's a sort of in the countryside near Norwich. And it's a lovely, they've got lovely grounds there. So if you, you're on retreat or something there, and you look across and you see Bente having a break from his work, and he's really looking at the, um, uh, the flowers or the trees or the sky, listening to the birds, but with such concentration as if nothing else mattered. You know, he's got all the worries of running this huge organisation with you know, literally thousands of people in the end trying to contact him and, um, you know, sorting out all sorts of um, constitutional issues and all sorts of things. But at that moment, he's totally pleased, totally enjoying um, nature in, in Padmaloka Gardens. And it, I haven't seen him myself so much in um, Marjimaloka, which is the next place he was living, but they also had nice gardens, and I believe he was just the same even though his eyesight was very, very much poorer at that time, and so he couldn't sort of see the detail. Um, you know, for instance, looking at a bee or a flower, I think he could just see a blurred shape. But, and I believe um, from an email from Buddhadasa that um, now in Adhisthana, again, he's, he still loves to go out and, and see nature. Uh, in his biographies, he loved, he loved to describe um, natural beauty. And I particularly remember uh, him talking about his time when he was living near the Himalayas in India. And he used to see, uh, I think it's the second biggest mountain in the world, or one of, one of the very tallest in the world, um, as the dawn came up and all the uh, changes in colour that occurred as it went from a sort of a dark sort of navy blue and the first little bit of silvery light and the eventually a sort of a, a deep golden light. And it obviously um, was a very, very strong experience for him. Um, that's just an example. And of course he's got, he's written a lot of poems about nature and uh, he's got a collection of um, semi-precious stones and you could say that appreciating semi-precious stones is appreciating nature, in a way. There's one video made, by, made for Finnish TV. It's called uh, In the Realm of the Lotus. And he's got an agate. It's just one piece of his collection. And he's talking about the, the importance that colour has on your level of consciousness, on your mind. It's a very important tool uh, in terms of changing your mental state. And then he sort of holds the agate up to the, the light and says, look at this. And you can tell he, you know, he's very in touch with that side of life. So now his appreciation of art. Well, I haven't seen it on your um, books for sale, but he, he, many, many years ago he wrote a book called The Religion of Art. And it's probably, maybe... A difficult read, maybe it's sort of old style Sangharakshita language, 
but uh, it's got an incredible amount of deep insights about art in it, and uh, I really recommend it. And then, more recently than that, but still a long time ago, there was a book of his short, pithy sayings called Aphorisms, called Pieces of Fire. And there's one section on that, on the arts. And again, he's got tremendous insights into the arts uh, and also into particular artists. I think he comments on um, Shelley, Coleridge, Beethoven, Milton. And, uh, of course, he writes his poems. And if, if there's time, I'll keep an eye on the clock. I'll just read a very small selection of his um, favourite poems, or his poems that people have chosen as favourites, commonly. Um, he distinguishes between um, higher art, which has a very good effect on your mind, and... Um, I don't want to use the word rubbish art, but he, he, he thinks that you know, not all art is edifying, not all art raises and inspires your level of consciousness. I mean, sometimes you're at the traffic lights and the car pulls up and you hear, <laughs> and you, you say, well, perhaps it's music, but you know, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't mix with meditation, it doesn't sort of edify and still the mind and inspire. So, I mean, he's, he's very conscious of that and the distinction, but. Um, I'd say he, he's got a deep appreciation of both religious and secular higher art, of all the art forms, whether it's architecture, novels, all sorts of music, etc., etc., etc. You know, very, very well developed. And a big knowledge. Next one, spiritual death. Uh, obviously, this is the same as physical death. It's death of what we call the ego, um, but this needs a little bit of uh, explanation before you get get it and get why Bante's gone a long way down this path as well. Uh, it would be wrong to think that there's a little bit of us somewhere, you know, in our neurons that's the ego bit. But you could say the ego is our very deep tendency uh, to have certain negative patterns, particularly the pattern of selfishness. Um, and it is very deep. I, I just give you a, a trivial example. Not so long ago, I was in Delhi, in the Delhi uh, underground system, the metro, and there's been a number of um, terrorist attacks in India. And of course, in, in Mumbai, um, there were a lot of terrorist bombs went off in the in the uh, Mumbai metros. So we were going chugging along, and then we stopped for a very long time. Um, between stations, which doesn't normally happen. So I started worrying and thinking, oh, you know, the way the imagination goes. And then I thought, I'm not worried about all these other people. Hundreds and hundreds of them. This is what I'm worried about. <laughs> and uh, I think that's just one example that we know that, you know, the way our minds so often work. I'm not... I, I was scared, but I wasn't scared for them. I was just... <laughs> So selfishness, so that's, that shows how deep and strong the ego is. But there's a lot of other um, indicators of ego. Um, you know, I'm, re I'm reifying the word ego. It's not a thing, but it's, it's a mental tendency based on this selfishness. For instance, many people, when they get criticised, they go, and sometimes they, get, um, they go all quiet, or sometimes they get sort of into counter-attack and quite belligerent, 
but you could tell very often people are mentally um, troubled when they receive criticism. But this is what we could say, the bruising of the ego. You know, we've got, we feel there's some part of us and some identity we've got to defend, and we're very, very vulnerable and very tender. So this is, this is an indication. People get very jealous and say, well, why are you jealous? You, you're no more important than someone else. It's wrong to think that you should have preference. And people get jealous. And someone who's very interested in um, status and uh, a bit boastful, maybe a bit conceited, it's an indication of um, ego. There are other indications too. It actually gets a bit depressing when you start to kind of tease it all out about, you know, all these sort of um, manifestations of the human ego, which we all have, and that's where very spiritually developed. So I'm going to tell you a nice story. It's a bit of a digression from Bante, but it's a nice story about Edmund Hillary, who you might know of, um, because he may have had a bit of an ego or not, I don't know, but he certainly didn't seem to be interested in status and certainly wasn't interested in being boastful. And if I tell you the story, it'll give you a little, like, you learn something from it, you get a sense of what it is be like not to be so egotistical. Well, uh, as you probably know, in northern Pakistan and northern India, for hundreds and hundreds of years, there's been villages uh, positioned within eyeshot of the, the, the tallest mountains in the world. Uh, but the people living there uh, never, never crossed their mind to climb those mountains because it was so hard just to survive, particularly survive the winter and to get enough food. Um, very difficult to grow crops in those areas. They didn't have um, all the modern... Um, mountaineering equipment like oxygen breathing equipment and ropes uh, so they were living under difficult circumstances for hundreds of years then at the beginning of the 20th century um, foreigners started arriving wanting to climb and the foreigners came with um, uh, all the gears of course it's got better you know as technology to produce different products but uh, from the beginning of the 20th century, people had their eye, foreigners had their eyes on climbing them. And of course, what everybody wanted to do was be the first human being to get to the top of the tallest mountain in the world. And many people tried this and died. And for instance, in 1924, there was a very famous Englishman called George Mullery, and he got to 800 feet of the top and, and died. Uh, and years later, decades later, they found his sort of frozen body a bit further down the mountain. But eventually, in 1953, I think it was, Edmund Hillary and his um, cohort, who was a local Sherpa, they got to the top, and they got, to, got back down again, um, you know, alive. And so the, the press all over the world had a ball, and they started saying, this guy, Edmund Hillary... He's hardly a human being. His body is so strong and his resolve is so steel-like. You know, he's, he's, he's an extraordinary human being. So Edmund Hillary kind of read all this for a while and then he thought, oh, I've got to say something about this. And he came out and said, actually, no, I'm just an ordinary bloke, just an ordinary bloke. And um, my mountaineering ability is about average, to be honest. It's not, not above average. He said, I was just extremely lucky. I got, the right, I got the right window in terms of the weather. 
And, um, you know, I just kind of caught the right wave in terms of the right um, climbing party. And it happened. So it would have been very easy for him to agree with all of these reports and maybe add a little bit more about the hardships involved. But he didn't. He told the truth. And then he said, well, I don't really want to be famous, but I don't mind. And it's, maybe it's quite useful because if I'm famous, I can, um, I can collect charity money very easily. So he's, he's, he's devoted a lot of years to um, collecting money for Nepalese charities. And in his uh, time doing that, he built and, and supervised the building, 27 schools, 12 medical clinics, two airstrips, and lots and lots and lots of bridges. Because, of course, you know, in the mountains, deep, deep sort of ravines, and you need the bridges. It's very important. So he came towards the end of his life, and he said, um, I've really enjoyed my life. I've really enjoyed the mountaineering. But the charity work, I enjoyed much more. And then he said, but I don't really want to be remembered for either. I don't, I'm not interested in, you know, being a big name into posterity. So he didn't seem to be the boastful sort. And, and in a way, it all worked in his favour, and he was a happier man for not being so arrogant about it. But anyway, we, in some form or other, probably can recognise the forces of ego in our own minds, and, and it's a very good thing to be aware of them. But where do they come from? Well, uh, the Buddha's answer and Bhante's answer is, uh, the fundamental problem is that we've got a, a deeply held wrong view that there's... Uh, something inside us that's um, separate from the rest of the universe and is unchanging. You know, Christians might call it a soul. But, um, you know, not that we're just part of the universe, you know, and completely interconnected, but something that's sort of fixed and separated out. And uh, this is the Hindu idea of uh, Atman. So the Buddha said, an Atman, there's no such thing as um, a, a fixed, unchanging self. So this deep, deep delusion is what perpetuates the ego. The practice of spiritual death is seeing through this um, delusion or weakening it because he said some spiritual death isn't achieved by one single blow, it's death by a thousand cuts. So it's a gradual wearing away of that ego delusion. And uh, the way to do it is to reflect not just to study theoretically, but to reflect very, very deeply on the Dhamma, especially on what's called the Three Lakshanas, which is impermanence, the Buddha's truth of uh, Anatman or Anatta, which is that we don't have a fixed self, and the truth that you'll never find complete and lasting happiness in the world outside, uh, and that's the truth of Dukkha. So, it seems to me that Bhante has gone a very long way down this track as well, um, first of all, he doesn't boast. Uh, he doesn't talk about his um, own inner meditation experiences and spiritual experiences, except to a very limited extent where it's of practical value to other people. Um, uh, he, he, he doesn't kind of elaborate things in that area very much. Um, perhaps the thing he could be most proud of if he wanted to be boastful and conceited would be that he started the Tree Ratna because it's, it's not an easy thing to do 
Um, but he doesn't speak about it boastfully. He says, well, in a way, I wasn't the ideal person to start it. In fact, the other, there might have been other people who would have been you know, more suited to the task. And then in another place, he says, the only reason I could do it was because I was able to get my ego out of the way. You know, to so, so like just let the the pure you know devotion to the Buddha and 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 uh, his own spiritual teachers just lead his energy forward. He's not interested in status. If you went to see him in his little um, apartment, I suppose you could call it in Birmingham, it was very modest. It wasn't full of. It didn't have the crown jewels. It didn't. <laughs> It didn't have, um, you know, he doesn't wear designer clothes, he just wears very simple clothes. It wasn't very, very big. And uh, it contrasts quite a lot with a lot of other um, spiritual teachers who tend to go for aggrandizement on that level too. And he's also, I'd say, gone a long way towards spiritual death because um, his understanding of the Dharma is extraordinary. We know this partly from... um, his writing, but the way he answers questions is, is amazing. He doesn't just give pat information like a parrot. Um, nearly every time you listen to him answer a, uh, a question, he'll, he'll put things in a different way and very often say something that you've never heard before. And his, his answers are not woolly. There's not an ounce of fudge in them. He knows exactly what he's saying. It, it makes perfect sense. Um, so it's obviously based on a lot of deep reflection and, and inner experience. It's not just like a, an academic. There's a lot of Buddhist academics in this world, people who earn their money, you know, in universities. But he's, he's, he's done the hard yards of reflection. So for that reason, I'd say he's gone a long way. Another thing about it, if you reflect a lot on impermanence, it's, it's very um, good because uh, you can adjust to the unfavorable winds of change much better. Uh, you know, in life, things happen and difficulties arise that you hadn't foreseen. But if you've um, got this kind of wisdom, uh, it doesn't throw you. you you've got much more flexible. And I'll I just cite an example. Uh, when he was with me in Wellington, uh, he was writing to... Whenever we went out, he was writing to go into nice natural beauty places like along the waterfront or to the Botanic Gardens. The other thing he loved to do, he just loved the second-hand bookshops. There was about five. He just went back like a honeybee, you know, all the time going into... And it, not, <laughs> he says he's a bit of a bibliophile. So not long after that, he got... Um, an eye condition called macular degeneration, he couldn't read anymore. And um, as I say, even his, uh, his um, perception of natural beauty would have been impaired because you just see shapes, you can see colour, but not, not distinctly. So uh, once this sort of became clear that it wasn't going to be reversed, um, one of his students said to him, oh, Bante, you must be terribly frustrated, you must be terribly angry about you know, what's happened and that you can't do what you used to love doing. And um, his reply was, no, not really. I've been thinking about impermanence for so many years that um, I'm not surprised that things happen like this. 
So he was able to sort of, you know, not, not be, die a bitter old man because of that, because he's got that sort of wisdom. So I better go on quickly to spiritual receptivity. Uh, this is trying, at least in imagination, to have a, a deeper sense of the Buddha. Uh, and in, here in the West, although I may not say this in India, uh, any of these um, transcendental Buddhas or Bodhisattvas that are more mythological, like Manjushri or um, Avalokiteshvara, because they sort of represent the, the quality of the Buddha. So it's not just um, imagining them as a shape and as an iconography, but it's trying to have a sense of their minds, and in particular of their transcendental quality. We, in, in Sanskrit the word is Lokutra, and Lokutra means that which is beyond the world. So through imagination, through visualizing the Buddha or some Bodhisattva, trying to have a sense of the goal of our spiritual life, where we're trying to head for, the, the, the transcendental. Um, and this comes through especially with the quality of reverence. And some people, when they do puja, they, they do feel very connected with not just the fact that Buddha was a great person, but his, his inner transcendental nature. So Buddha, uh, Bhante has this quality very strongly. He, he's described himself as, in one place as primarily a faith type. You know, you might think, well, primarily a wisdom type, but no, he says he has very strong feelings of reverence. And uh, it's, it's hard for me to choose stories to illustrate this, but he also feels a lot of reverence to his own teachers who he felt were um, very spiritually advanced. Uh, a lot of them were Tibetans, but not all. But uh, he didn't choose them because they were Tibetans, but just because they were very, very extraordinarily great people. And to, in certain respects, uh, they embody the transcendental quality, maybe not to the full extent of the Buddha, but to some extent. So he feels a lot of reverence to them. And before he handed over the reins for the ordination process in the Tree Ratna, uh, I think in the week before that, every night he had very strong dreams that uh, over the period of that time uh, involved all of his um, eight main teachers. And he said uh, he, he took this as a sign that he was doing the right thing to hand over the responsibility for the ordination process. But, um, you know, always in the back of his mind he has a sense of, of uh, his own teachers and a reverence towards them. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 